Hey guys, Jackson here. In talking about Twilight Zone the movie, we thought it necessary to address the real-life tragedy that occurred on set. Uh, the narrative of the first segment also addresses heavy themes like racism and anti-Semitism. So if you don't want to hear about that for whatever reason, skip ahead to 19 minutes in to hear us pick up at the second segment in the anthology. Okay, with that out of the way, on to the episode. This episode was brought to you by our Patreon supporters, longtime supporters like Greg and Pearl Morgan, Amy Swan, Greg Bench, Joe Robertson, and Dan George, and new patrons like Kate Lamb, Andred, and Carl Davis are the people who make this podcast possible. Stick around for an extended shout out at the end. Now on to the episode. Welcome to another episode of Father and Son Watch Horror Movies. I am your co-host, the father, aka Pastor Matt. And I am joined, as always, by my trusty sidekick. Jackson the Sun, letting the midnight special shine a light on me. What's that song <laughs> about? I'm, I'm not sure. I don't know. <laughs> oh, boy. We are a spoiler podcast. We spoil the movies we are about to discuss, so fair warning. And uh, for this episode, we are discussing, on its 40th anniversary, Twilight Zone, the movie. So, the IMDb synopsis reads... Four horror and science fiction segments directed by four famous directors, each of them bring a new version of a classic story from Rod Serling's landmark television series. That's fairly accurate, right? Except for one segment, yeah. Yeah, one segment kind of mishmashes two of them. We'll talk about Mm -hmm. that here in a second. But, of course, those four directors are John Landis, uh, Steven Spielberg, Joe Dante, and George Miller. So... Jackson, when did you first see Twilight Zone, the movie? This was my first time watching it all the way through. I think I had seen, uh, I think I had at least seen the Miller segment before watching this movie. And I was aware I had seen screenshots of the Dante segment. Uh, Mm -hmm. I knew nothing about Spielberg's uh, segment going in. Uh, and I don't know if it was a surprise or a shock or what it was, but uh, <laughs> I was very surprised by that. And the only thing I knew about Landis' segment was, unfortunately, the true story, the uh, yeah. the thing that happened on set. That's the only thing I knew about it going in. So it was interesting to me watching it and being like, I'm not really sure at what point. And then there's one part where you're like, okay, I can see this is probably where that occurred. But yeah, so I didn't know very much going in. I didn't know exactly what segments would be recreated and what original ideas will be incorporated. Um, but I'm a huge fan of the original Twilight Zone. I really don't think there's another show that captures the the feeling of the Twilight Zone, where it's kind of creepy, but also kind of calming and nostalgic and uh, cozy, I think would would be the word I'd use to describe it. But um, this movie doesn't capture that same feeling for me, but it also, I think, excels in a few ways. It's, it's a very different feeling from the original show, but I also think it has uh, some things that it brings to the table. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I first saw this on cable like in 84 or so. And uh, because it wasn't, I don't believe it was R-rated. I think it was PG. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw it like during the day at like my grandparents' house. They had HBO. I I am a huge fan of the Rod Serling original series. And I agree with you, but I don't think any of the reboots, even Jordan Peele's, I think, admirable attempt, because Jordan Peele, a huge Rod Serling fan, um, you know, you could even see that in his movies, obviously. But... I don't think any reboot anything has been able to touch Serling's original. 
No. Yeah, I think you're right about that. And there were some parts of that Jordan Peele, I think maybe we talked about this a little bit when we did our, our Jordan Peele episode, but I think there were some parts of that Twilight Zone Jordan Peele reboot. And we say Jordan Peele, but he wasn't, uh, he was just a producer. He was like an executive producer on it, right? Right. But uh, I think there were some parts of that that really captured that feeling of, of mystery, kind of had more of an X-Files feel to it for me than the Twilight Zone, that Jordan Peele Twilight Zone. Uh, yeah, it had it had its highlights. I mean, it's yeah. kind of it, it, his kind of the spin that was put on, you know, the the airplane thing. I mean, it was all, you know, there was some very good stuff in it. The one with the racist cop, and you know, and the video camera and stuff like that. I thought there were some good segments, but I just don't think anybody's been able to nail what Rod Serling did and not and and unfortunately people go from watching all the twilight zones and i think i've seen all of them even megan's a big fan of the original twilight zone you know serling goes on to do night gallery but he's really only a spokesperson he's getting paid to just introduce the segments sure it's not rod serling yeah yeah and you can tell i mean i love a lot of the anthologies that came out of the the 80s and um they they all are obviously going for that uh, Twilight Zone type of thing, but you can tell that that there's just something missing from it for me all the time. I don't know what it is. It's that X factor, I guess. Um, but I love movies like Creepshow. Um, sure. But that's a different voice. You know, this is something that can never be recaptured, I think. And it was an interesting idea to take these uh, hot directors at the time and give them this this source material and see what they would do with it and how their interpretations differ. But um, it's one that I don't think necessarily – it doesn't seem like the directors were chosen for for any reason in particular. Like nothing about George Miller to me screams Nightmare at 20,000 Feet, you know, like I don't know. Or um, uh, maybe a little bit with Joe Dante, I guess, with the cartoons and the and – the, um, Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that. It's my understanding that, you know, Spielberg – the studio wanted Spielberg to do this himself. Mm-hmm. Um, he wanted to do segments and he picked kind of what he saw as the three hot young directors who were coming up, you know, Joe Dante had just done Piranha and the Howling, mm-hmm. both of which Spielberg loved, you know, um, Landis had done, of course, National Lampoon's Animal House and the Blues Brothers, but he'd also done an American Werewolf in London. Right. Um, and then you've got George Miller who had just done Mad Max and the Road Warrior. Mm-hmm. And so he, he handpicks like these up and coming directors and Spielberg, of course, is hot, can get anything made because he's coming off of E.T. and Raiders of the Lost Ark. Sure. Back to back. So how about we you say we take this segment by segment and we'll finish with the wraparound. How does that sound? OK, yeah, that's 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 one way to do it. I don't think the rap, it's kind of, there's no good way to address that wraparound no. is there. <laughs> well, it really we'll is get, just out of left field. We'll get to it. But the first up, of course, is the most controversial. It's John Landis's Time Out, a loose remake of two different episodes yeah. from Serling's original series. It's a mashup of the episodes back there and Quality of Mercy. We have the late Vic Morrow, who was father of Jennifer Jason Lee, and we'll get into all that in a minute, you know, playing a racist who walks out of a bar and into harrowing, harrowing situations involving race and ethnicity with his character transformed into the minority and kind of having to face his own bigotry. Is that a fair enough assessment? 
I would say so, yeah. And some people might get the wrong idea from that. He's not literally portrayed as that minority. It's just still him as Vic Morrow. I think that'd be really awkward if they made him do like black. But he he has seen he is seen like by American soldiers as Vietnamese or he's yeah, seen That's right. You know, as Jewish by Nazis or whatever. And so now the segment in and of itself I I, I can't say it's a bad segment. I like this segment. And I always mm-hmm. thought Vic Morrow played a great heavy. Absolutely. Yeah. But it's hard to watch yeah. because of what happened under the direction of, of John Landis. And if you've seen yeah. like the documentary Cursed Films, of course, Vic Morrow and two children who are not supposed to even be there under union rules, they were mm-hmm. breaking those rules, were killed because... Landis wanted a grand explosion that went horribly, horribly wrong. Yeah, yeah, it is It is really hard to watch for various reasons. I mean, even just if you're just watching it, not knowing about the real life tragedy, you know, the language used and the images depicted, I mean, that first scene with Vic Moros in the bar is really rough. I mean, he's just yeah. really going into it. Um, and then obviously, you know, he's transported to Nazi Germany and that's, that's really tough to watch. He's, he's a, a black person or a, some kind of minority being, uh, persecuted by the KKK. Right. Uh, and then he's, yeah, he's a, a, a Vietnamese, um, person in the Vietnam war. Yeah, it is, it is really, really hard to watch that. And even more so, like you said, knowing about the real life tragedy. I don't know a lot about the details of it because I don't really care to look into it necessarily. Um, I think the more you know about that, probably the, the more you're going to regret. But um, mm-hmm. I, I think, you know, you hear about these things on a film set, by the way, these tragedies that happen. Um, and you have to ask yourself, is it worth it? You know, is the art that was created worth the tragedy? And obviously not. This segment, as you know, as good as it is at points, obviously it's not worth, you know, three lives being lost. Um, well, but it's, I don't think it, you can hold that against the movie, against the, the segment. It's one thing if a stunt man dies doing a stunt because they know the risk. They know that there's a risk that they could be seriously hurt or killed. And they have signed on to that. Right. But, but, and they're, you know, but then, or even you look at a tragedy like Brandon Lee on the set of The Crow. Yeah. Where, you know, and the same thing apparently happened on Alec Baldwin's movie where they just, they were careless, you know, the, the weapon ear or whatever they called the, the arms handler was, was careless with the guns and things like that happen. But this was completely preventable. You did not need that kind of explosion. You did not need two children. You did not need Vic Morrow in that shot. You did not need it. And, you know, you already had a powerful segment. You didn't need any of that. And look, I, I admire John Landis as a filmmaker, even though I don't think he's done really a great feature film since like 1992 or so, maybe even 88. Um, But he did do a doc, good documentary on Don Rickles, you know, about 10 or 11 years ago before Don Rickles died. But and I love listening to interviews with John Landis because he's had an incredible life. This is a guy who dropped out of school to work in the mailroom at a movie studio. He saves up his money, flies to Europe. There's a story there in and of itself to become a production assistant on Kelly's Heroes. 
you know, which is shooting, you know, near the Iron Curtain or even behind the Iron Curtain with Clint Eastwood. He then takes that experience and he goes to Spain with a buddy and ends up or Italy or Spain or both, you know, doing stunt work and extra work for Sergio Leone. Then he comes back, goes right back to his job at the mailroom, but befriends Alfred Hitchcock and Robert Altman and all these people and ends up hanging out with having lunch with Hitchcock once a week, you know, all that kind of stuff Uh, discovers Rick Baker. I mean, you know, and he tells these stories and they're great. I love listening to interviews with him, but this incident, and then to add insult to injury, I don't know if you saw this, if you saw the, did you see the cursed films thing about Mm -mm. Twilight Zone? Okay. Uh, at Vic Morrow's funeral, John Landis gives a eulogy. Mm-hmm. Don't ask me why anyone would have let him do that. And in my opinion, what he said was incredibly inappropriate and offensive. He said something to the effect about Vic. He said, well, life is short, but film is forever. Mm. Yeah. Woof. That's not good, right? No. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause so, I mean, he's, ba- I, I think I know what he's saying. He's saying that, the, you know, Vic's career is on film, that he will never die in that sense. But the way it sounds is it's worth it that he died, that we got to make Twilight Zone the movie. Yeah. 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 That's yeah. rough. And it's, you know, I, <laughs> It, it is it is tough and you know I'm sure he thinks about it all the time I'm sure that I mean that that's gotta st- stick well, with he, you that kind of thing he he barely evaded criminal charges yeah um, he settled out of court probably for millions of dollars with the families mm-hmm. um, and apparently Steven Spielberg never spoke to him again yeah yeah I've heard people say that you know Spielberg really his heart wasn't in the project and maybe that's why his segment is the way it is it's kind of sappy and um well apparently he had to talk really george feel- miller into finishing his too because yeah. uh, apparently all of them were like this is horrible i mean we just need to shut this down and but spielberg had a contract and yeah he fulfilled it but apparently to this day he will not even look john landis's direction sure yeah and i know you know like you said that that stunt was not necessary and we know it's not necessary because it's not in the final film i mean we just cut from vietnam back to the present era and get kind of a glower ending i think the original ending was supposed to be a little bit more redemptive for vic morrow's character yes but it works i mean the segment works without that obviously so that is tragic knowing that all you need is you could have had the explosion with no one around yeah and cut to him in the water with the kids with just the backdrop of the effects of an explosion, you can see fire in the water or whatever. You didn't need all of that. Yeah. Yeah. And it is tragic. And it is, I mean, it's, it's tough to watch that, that, um, that segment knowing that, but um, I'm, for one, I am glad that they continued production and release the film because if, you know, what, what was the point otherwise, you know, it's like, if you just scrap the whole thing, it's like, that's, I think that's even worse. Yeah. But, I'd have yeah, I'd have mixed feelings about it, but I understand what you're saying. It's yeah. just But I'm also but, glad we didn't see that helicopter scene in the final cut. I'm glad that isn't in there or even a hint of that. I'm glad that we just totally um bypass that. And I do think it has an okay ending. I mean, it's like 
it is tough to see Vic Morrow's in his last role kind of get punished for all eternity for being a racist. And it's like, there's, there's no redemption arc there. Yeah. There um, was no need to have the helicopter and camera either. I mean, it's just, right, I don't, sure. uh, anyway, what, what do you have to say more, any more about this segment? And, and well, if not, then just you can rate this segment or, or do sure. Both. Yeah. I think that's a good idea to rate them as we go and then kind of get a cumulative thing going for the, the final film. But uh, first of all, I think seeing John Larroquette as a Klansman has fundamentally altered my brain chemistry. <laughs> that is something. Um, oh. Wow. And he says the N-word hard R. I mean, that's just, it is really something to be. Well, he is from Louisiana, so. <laughs> that's true. He's from Louisiana and he, he went to school in Texas with Toby Hooper, so. Yeah, it is. It's 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 just so it's not uh, like he I'm not saying that makes John Larroquette a racist. I'm saying I'm sure it wasn't the first time he'd heard that word is what no. I'm saying. No. Yeah. So that that was something. Um, and I think, you know, just to give some overall thoughts, I think it, it is a successful short overall. It's not the best in the movie. It's more than a little dark, but I think it I think it is effective at, at conveying its main idea. Um, like I said, it's not my favorite in the film. I think I would give it a seven out of 10 overall as far as mm. short films go. Um, and, uh, and I would say that it obviously is not worth the tragedy that, that happened on set. But I think that, um, as a final product and I'm glad they finished it, but I think as a final product, it's probably the best it could be from this bad situation. Yeah. I'm about there with you. I gave it a 6.5. Mm-hmm. Um, Mainly because of Vic Morrow, um, yeah. but uh, yeah, it's just tough to watch. It's just tough to watch. He is excellent in that. I mean, it is a, a great. I mean, as as good of a performance as you can go out on. I mean, like you said, th- this is tr- a tough role to watch, but he did play the heavy a lot of the time, and this is the ultimate heavy role for him. Yeah. That kind of does have a little bit of a a deeper dimension to it because as it goes on, he kind of gets closer to a redemption arc, but he, it's kind of cut short from him. So there is kind of an interesting angle to it, um, and it is, it's not, you know, the worst role you can go out on. Um, you know, I think of um, uh, Ray Liotta with Cocaine Bear. It's like you may might like Cocaine Bear, but thinking that uh, uh, celebrated actor Ray Liotta's last film was Cocaine Bear is kind of an interesting thought. Well, hey, look, I mean, there's a long history of that, unfortunately. I think Peter Sellers' last film was The Adventures of Fu Manchu, which most people yeah. uh, label a stinker. So, you yeah. know, and <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it does happen. But, oh, uh, well, anyway, um, let's move on to Mr. Spielberg's segment, mm-hmm. which is the next one. Kick the Can with the great Scatman Crothers. He plays Mr. Bloom, who checks into a small retirement home. Never seen one that small, actually. Yeah. Just and, a whole, it's literally a retirement home. Yes. It's not It's not a center or a village. It is just a, like a two-story home. And, um, and tries to talk the elderly residents into playing kick the can in order to feel young again. Um, I will be just upfront with this one. This one... While well-made, feels out of place to me. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Especially after that last segment. Yeah, you go from way dark to this. I mean, it feels, and I know that the movie predated it, it feels much more like a Spielberg Amazing Story segment than it does something from The Twilight Zone, even though I know it was based on, you know, The Twilight Zone. 
and I love Scatman Crothers, but it just feels odd here. Yeah, I'm right there with you. Um, I think that uh, I mean it's very play like. It's it's it is very saccharine. Um, you know, like you said, Scatman Carruthers, he might have the most infectious smile of all time. He's great. I mean, watching him is it's always uh, entertaining. I, lo- I love him and everything, yeah. But uh, I think it would be funny to do a double feature of this and George Romero's The Amusement Park. It's like the saccharine versus the nihilistic uh, takes on, on elder abuse. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it just it, it is really syrupy. Like you said, I mean, it, it feels almost like a parody of the sentimental parts of Spielberg's films. It's just really, really, really syrupy. And it doesn't really have much to say overall, I think. It's kind of just there's a child and every old person, they just have to recapture it. They just have to believe to kind of recapture that childlike wonder, which is like, yeah, that's great. But that could have been like a proverb on a wall. You know what I mean? That could have been like wall yeah. art. That didn't need to be. Of you, however long it is, 20-minute segment. Or you take it out of a fortune cookie after some orange chicken, yeah. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> I think that, honestly, that might have been where Spielberg got the idea. And he was like, oh, there's there's a Twilight Zone sort of like this? Okay. He was at a P.F. Chang's. And, um, yeah, I think that's what it was, Panda Express. <laughs> oh, I'd love to see Steven Spielberg at a Panda Express. Absolutely. Um, I would love to go to with Sp- Steven Spielberg do a hibachi and see what that would be like. That would be well. Fun. According to Spielberg, if you watch the um, John Milius documentary, which everybody should watch, uh, John Milius was the was considered one of the greatest screenwriters of his generation, and he hung out. He was among that group that hung out with George Lucas and Steven Spielberg and Brian De Palma and and Martin Scorsese and and that group in the seventies. And he was really known as the best script doctor in town, mm-hmm. Milius. He he script doctored a bunch of stuff for Clint Eastwood, Dirty Harry, Magnum Force, all that kind of stuff. He was Eastwood's kind of go-to man to clean up a script. But he also did some great movies on his own. In the 80s, his politics started to show and people started to give him the cold shoulder. He did, Of course, he wrote and directed, co-wrote with Oliver Stone, which were strange bedfellows, um, <laughs> Conan the Barbarian. Yeah. And and then he directed Red Dawn, the original Red Dawn with Patrick Swayze and so forth. Um, but Milius was a guy who used to drive down the Pacific Coast Highway on a motorcycle with a shotgun and a katana sword on his back um, and um, called himself a Zen anarchist. And <laughs> Spielberg said that when he Milius was nominated for best screenwriter because he wrote Apocalypse Now. And when he lost uh they Melia said i don't want to go to the governor's ball i don't want to do any of that nonsense i want to go get a cheeseburger and a beer and so apparently Melia, steven spielberg brian de palma martin scorsese and george lucas all walk into this like dive hamburger place in west hollywood and have cheeseburgers and beers and spielberg said still the best after oscar party i've ever been to <laughs> i bet yeah I would love to be there, by the way. Can I just say, if I get a time machine, I know what I'm setting it for. <laughs> yes, you want to exactly walk into that. Then. Yeah, I'll, 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 like Hitman style, take out the bartender and be their bartender. I think that would be the best way to, to kind of. <laughs> and isn't it that. weird that because it, it would have been 19, early 1980, and most people wouldn't have even recognized Steven Spielberg. But yeah, I this one just yeah, it's it's a little odd, and I guess. After E.T., I, I don't know, because at the same time he was, you know, the, the same time he wrote Poltergeist. I'm not sure what he was thinking. I, I love Scatman Carruthers in it, but otherwise I think it's just kind of meh. 
Yeah, I'm I'm pretty much right there with you. I think the worst part is that one kid with the dubbed in fake British accent. Yeah. That was ugh. he's like, You've got to stay here now. You've got to stay with yourself. And it's like, I'll you... always be in you. I'll always be with you. It's like just uh Steven, this is I think just... I think your Cockney accent is better than his. Um Yeah. <laughs> it's not even Cockney. That was just my I think yeah, that would have been funnier. It's more like a halfway between English and kind of like a posh British, but it's it's, it's, really it's a, it's a you got a little Michael Caine Cockney in that one, a yeah. little bit of Michael Caine Cockney yeah. in there. But it's a, overall, um, I would say, you know, he's obviously like drawing from Peter Pan. I think with that kid at the end doing a somersault sure. out the window and flying away, um, and it's kind of a nice idea. I think again, I think Romero did it better with the amusement park. He kind of illustrated the point better that that older people still have something to give, you know, and that. Um, they were once a kid just like you, you know, that kind of idea. And it communicates well, that in a different way. But uh, I, I agree. I think there was an opportunity here that Spielberg yeah. missed. And I think you're right. It's not just you're old, so therefore you need to be young. Not that mm-hmm. I have a problem with, because uh, I certainly, you know, I, there's a reason why I'm doing a PhD at 51 and probably will stay in school for the rest of my life in some way, shape or fashion, because you know, the more you study and read and keep your mind sharp, the less likely you are to have dementia and so forth. And, right. and, you know, I've, I've been exercising, lopped off 13 pounds. Nice. Um, and, uh, you know, I take a, at least a brisk walk every day at the very least. And, you know, all that kind of stuff and, and, and trying to stay healthy as I can, as long as I can. But, and I never thought I'd be quoting Bill Maher, but uh, Bill Maher has been making a lot more sense these days than a lot of other people when he says, you know, there's a lot of ageism out there. And he says, you know, once upon a time when he was growing up, and I was the same way. It was like, you know, you get over kind of your, your late teens, and early twenties when you think, you know, everything. And then you realize people in their sixties and seventies and so forth, they've actually been there and done that. And they have some wisdom. And for most of our, most of mankind's existence, we've always looked to the older people for wisdom. And, you know, and I think that what Romero was doing was, you know, yeah, these, the, you know, they have something to give, but look at how we treat them. Whereas Spielberg's message seems to be just act like a kid. Yeah. Yeah. Just act like a kid and play like a kid. I guess the idea is play like a kid and your mind will follow a suit, but it's just really awkward just to see these like old people going, Oh, let's go play kick the can. We're sneaking out. You know, it's, it's comical almost. It's very strange and not the tone of the rest of the movie at all. I mean, the closest we get is that wraparound, which we'll talk about in a little bit, which is kind of comical, but this is just like, it's just really saccharine and I don't hate, hate it. It's not like I would like, No, it's not terrible. It's just out of place. It's out of place. And it's, it's definitely the one that works the least, I think. And I'm not even opposed to having a non horror twilight zone segment in this thing, but I mean, no, cause they're there. Yeah. That you had those, you know, mm-hmm. and, but you know, just like you had a lot of that in the sixties um, when the twilight zone really flourished. You know, Star Trek would occasionally have one of those or something like that, like the trouble with Tribbles and, you know, whatever. And but uh, yeah, when but they didn't package him back to back. Do you know what I mean? They wouldn't have done like Star Trek wouldn't have had the space seed with Khan trying to kill Kirk and Mm -hmm. then and then trouble with Tribbles back to back. You know what I mean? It's just it feels strange. And so, 
yes, Scatman Crothers is always great. I think he's great here. I think the entire cast is great. It just feels to transition from Vic Morrow in a boxcar headed to a, a concentration camp. Yeah. To Scatman Crothers saying, let's play click, kick the can is a strange, you know, kind of movement. It is absolutely. And it injects a little bit of that, that like sci-fi kind of broader kind of vibe to it when Scatman Crothers goes to a different retirement home at the end, which by the way, apparently just down the road, there's another small retirement home, like literally two story home. Where is this place? (laughs) Well, they're Uh, so small that they have to have a lot of them. I guess so. I guess so. (laughs) Maybe that whole town is a retirement village, like all the houses there. It's like, it's like, it's like the village in Florida. It just goes on and on and on. I think that might be it. But, um, you know, we get an implication that he's some kind of like angel or watcher of some kind. Um, which like, by the way, if you're an angel and God gives you that position, like you gotta be like, really, this is what I'm doing. This is, I'm an almighty angel. I'm, I'm like super powerful and I'm kicking the can with old people is what I'm doing here. All right, whatever. Uh, Maybe that was the job he gave Satan and that's what ticked Satan off. Yeah. 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 I think that's probably what kick the can with Adam and Eve. He didn't know being at the right hand of God was going to mean kicking the can with old people. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. It, it, I would give it a 5 out of 10, I think. Okay. It's, I mean, if this was a student short that I saw like in a showcase, I would be like, yeah, I mean, it's kind of – it looks good. It's got that sepia tone kind of nostalgic look to it. Again, they got great casting with Scatman Crothers, and, and I'm – I'm analyzing this as if it's like made by someone other than Steven Spielberg. If I just saw the short film, let me let me guess. Mm-hmm. Let me let me just take a wild guess here. If sure. you saw this as a student film at yeah. a showcase, yeah, and then ten years later, you heard that that person was directing Hallmark films, would you be shocked? I would not at all. <laughs> Yeah, it's absolutely that. It's absolutely it's it's a little bit less formulaic maybe than a Hallmark film because there's sci-fi like elements in it. Well, but they're basing it on a Rod Serling story, so that sure. helps. Yeah, but um, yeah, I think it's a five out of ten, and um, yeah, it's just not what I would expect. Honestly, thinking about it now, if they had just slotted the amusement park in as a segment in this <laughs> thing, I think I would have enjoyed that more. I mean, it kind of works as a Twilight Zone segment. It does. Yeah, you're so, right. It does. I mean, they probably should have just slotted that right in. And, and amusement park is, is less than an hour, right? It's like 50-some minutes, I think. Yeah, like, 50. And you can even cut it down a little bit to make it fit better. Sure. You can cut out the announcer in the beginning and just instead make that the voiceover. Uh, intro to this uh, like this 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 old man is lost in an amusement park and he's about to enter the twilight zone you know um but i i think that would have worked out but as is i think you know five out of ten for this one steven spielberg you think about the potential he could have had doing right. a doing a twilight zone thing and you're i am kind of surprised you picked this one maybe he just really just he wanted to do this one because it was the least amount of time devoted to it it was the least amount of effort uh, and maybe he just wanted to work with scatman crothers i mean you know who, yeah who knows i mean he was a big fan of the shining and stanley kubrick so but i, I i'm with you i give it a six out of ten i gave it an extra point just because of scatman yeah that's fair you gave an you gave an extra point for vic morrow so i think you have to give one for scatman uh, crothers yeah, too. i think you have to for scatman crothers so i one think one other it's, note one other note i had just looking mm-hmm. at this the one old lady in that retirement home, she is gripping that poor cat tight to her. Like she is grabbing that thing. I'm, I'd be surprised if it could breathe. That thing has run away before. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. I, I hear you. I hear you. Uh, so the next segment is Joe Dante's and it is, it's a good life. Mm-hmm. So we have Kathleen Quinlan picks up a little boy, Anthony, to get him home safely to his quote unquote family. Yeah. Um, the rest of the cast is also notable. A number of Dante regulars, right? We get Dick Miller and Kevin McCarthy. That's how you know it's a Dante movie. Like as soon as yeah. you see, as you see him, you're like, oh, Dick Miller. Okay, it's a Joe Dante segment. Yeah, as soon as you see Kevin and Dick, it's like, yep, yep, yep. And so, of course, we soon realize that Anthony's family is not his real family, yeah. right? And Anthony has supernatural powers, and his adopted family are terrified of him. And this is, you know, based pretty fairly, at least the script is based, you know, fairly close to Serling. So what did yeah. you think? Uh, I mean, I loved this this segment. I think, you know, just as a spoiler right now, I think it was the strongest segment in the, in the film. Wow. Uh, I have a tiny bit of an issue with the ending. And we'll discuss that. But I think it's it's definitely the most inspired segment, I would say, out of all of these. I mean, um, of course, it's an iconic uh, it's an iconic short from the Twilight Zone. That's, you know, you're a, yeah, you're because... a bad man. It's a classic, <laughs> classic episode. Well, and the original the original kid is in the bar. Bill Mummy, who so, played right. the original kid, is has got a cameo in it. Nice. Yeah. He, it would have been a little too on the nose in that bar when those those guys are roughing up the, the kid. He had said, you guys are bad men. But yes. I would have loved that. A part of me would have loved that. Um, but I think it's definitely the most inspired of the segments in here. It really takes it takes the idea and kind of remakes it in a way that I think was necessary. It doesn't feel like just, oh, another take on this. It actually feels like Dante had some ideas for it. And he took well, it you mentioned it early. Ways. You can definitely see his love of Looney Tunes in it. Absolutely. I mean, we get those surreal elements that um, are kind of hinted at in the original. We get some surreal stuff in the original, but it's mostly like um, just people transforming into like objects, like household objects. Whereas right. in this, I mean, we get some grotesque, grotesque, like surreal imagery. So um, some of it works really well. Some of it not as much. I mean, some of it kind of feels like Nightmare 5 or whatever it is, where Freddy's in the video game. He's like got the – he's fighting the guy, uh, you know. <laughs> that I think that's, Fre- that's, that's Freddy's dead, isn't it, where he's got like the Nintendo Power Glove or whatever. Yeah. And, I yeah. guess I should say that Freddy's dead reminds me of this when the girl's in the TV yeah. in the cartoon. Um, it's not quite itchy and scratchy from The Simpsons, but uh, no. it's that kind of idea. But, um, yeah, I just – I love the design of the house that they go to. Um, I love that it gets more and more distorted, like we're going deeper and deeper into the subconscious of this kid. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's just – and this is really foreboding for back in action, for Looney Tunes back in action. I mean, this is <laughs> literally the Tasmanian devil within this segment. You can tell Joe Dante is like, can I please – please, Warner Brothers, please let me do a Looney Tunes movie. yeah. Poor Joe. He's still trying to get stuff made. And, you know, it's, ah, he's. If uh, I ever win the lottery, Joe, I will give you all the money you need to make whatever you want. Blank check. He is, has an encyclopedic knowledge of film. He is, from all I've seen, I've never actually met the man. I've seen him twice, but I never actually spoke to him. But from what I saw, just seems like a sweet person. Uh, but also just a really gifted director. I mean, we've talked about The Howling. One day we need to talk about Piranha. We've talked about Gremlins in a little bit. 
you know, we've, we've talked about your love for the explorers when you were a kid and, and inner space and the burbs and, and of course, gremlins too, and matinee. I mean, he's just, you know, he's just a solid director, but here I liked it, but I was a little distracted by when it went a little over the top. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that. Like I said, I love the cast in it. I love that Dick Miller is in it. I love Dick Miller in anything, you know, God rest his soul. Um, and, uh, you know, Kevin and, and, and Kathleen Quinlan, I think, is a criminally underrated actress. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, she's our window into this, into this world, right? She's our POV character. Yes. Um, I mean, if you aren't familiar with the original segment before watching this, you think initially that the family is crazy and that the kid is normal, uh, which right. I, I love the way it develops. Um because, I mean, it's just we get little hints here and there. And, of course, knowing the original segment beforehand helps a lot in, in kind of deducing what's going on. But I would love to go in with fresh eyes and just see this as this is a weird family, you know, with all their weird rituals they got going on. But uh, and then slowly finding out as time goes on that they that what you think is happening is not happening, which I, I love. But um, yeah. I mean, if you, you hadn't could, seen the original, I. When I watched this on cable, I knew what was going to happen because I'd seen the original. I used to watch the Twilight Zone used to be on reruns in the late 70s, early 80s on WUAB out of Cleveland when I was a kid. So I'd get home from school and I would watch Twilight Zone. So I'd seen this segment. But yeah, if you've never seen that segment and you go into this, really, I mean, you have some suspicions, but it's not until when it when is it that Kathleen Quinn like gets the note? Yeah, that's your first real major tell. And even then you could still be in denial and you could think that the family is kind of misleading her. But then, I mean, when he, you know, when he starts doing stuff like turning you know the tasman the tv into the tasmanian devil you can you really get the get the picture but i would love to go in with fresh eyes i don't know that there's anyone probably who would watch the segment without knowing the original but i think and feel free to correct me on this i'm pretty sure this does a better job of kind of leaving it ambiguous up until that point about what the the antagonist is of the short until that point. I feel like in the original, it's a little bit more clear that the kid has kind of got everyone cowering under him and that, you know, that he's kind of the antagonist of the short. I think that's a little bit more clear from the beginning. There's less of a mystery about what's going on. Um, but that's just a really interesting angle. I would love to see that used more often where you're kind of misled as to who the villain is. And it turns out that they're actually the, the, the victim of the whole thing. It's a really interesting idea. And what a terrible, terrible, like, thing to think about that this family has been trapped in there for who knows how long you know in this, this right like madhouse and uh, what happened to anthony's original family exactly i mean we see the sister she's the only one right. left and she's got her mouth you know her mouth has disappeared matrix style so right. it's like what happened to the rest of them were they transformed into the household maybe they're the couch they're sitting on you know it's like it's it's really, really disturbing to think about. And that's what I love. I love these broad ideas that are just kind of communicated on a human level. Um, I don't want to say it's it's Lovecraftian, uh, but you know what I mean when I say that. It's it's kind of like a really broad idea that gets your mind racing, but it's only communicated in very subtle ways uh, through human eyes. So that's a really cool – and I'm talking this up a lot, but at the end of the day, it is just really a fun segment. It's it's kind of anxiety-inducing, but it is fun overall to just see what this yeah. kid can do when he's given total free reign to just make whatever he wants happen. Yeah, and you can tell – I mean, just listen, Gremlins and so forth and Piranha. 
I mean, Dante does at times, he doesn't so much in the howling, but it does at times kind of lighten things up a little bit. And because, you know, Joe Dante always has to a, to a degree tongue in cheek. Right. And so uh, you can see that it, it's not my favorite segment. I do really like it. I, I do think that the characters are great. I love Kevin McCarthy. Um, if nothing else, Kevin McCarthy, of course, in one of my favorite uh, movies from the 1950s, the original Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Yeah. Um, and Kevin McCarthy has a great sense of humor. I remember Gilbert Godfrey told the story that he gave this, um, and he may tell it on uh, the Aristocrats documentary that Penn Jillette did, but he's telling, he said he just does this filthy, filthy joke as Gilbert Godfrey could do. I mean, just incredibly offensive joke. And he mentions Kevin McCarthy. And one of the lines in the joke is, you know, a supporting actor like Kevin McCarthy and then supporting actor Kevin McCarthy walks in and da 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 and tells this horrible, offensive joke. And somebody repeated it to Kevin McCarthy and he's sitting there and Gilbert was like, what'd he say? He goes, oh, he was offended. And Gilbert's like, oh, because he actually really likes him. He goes, yeah, that you called him a supporting actor. <laughs> he said, I'm yeah. a leading man. <laughs> that's right, Kevin. You're a leading man in my heart too. <laughs> that's right. But that's the only thing that offended him. Um, anyway, I, I'm going to go a seven out of 10 on this one. I'm bigger. I'm 8.5. I'm, oh, wow. I'm way high on this one. This is my favorite. Now, the only thing is the ending. Um, it's mm. different from the original episode, no? The the ending of the segment. If memory serves, it's been a while since I've seen the original episode. The, the only thing that really sticks out for me from the original episode right now, even though I think I saw it like maybe two years. I think I saw it in one of those Twilight Zone marathons, like maybe during COVID. So maybe two or three years ago. And uh, that that they, you know, repeat that you're a bad man, a very bad, you know, that kind of stuff. But um, and that you I recognized Bill Mummy in it. But um, so, yeah, it surprised me. You don't usually go that high on anything. Yeah, I'm just I'm really up on this one. I, I really like the creativity taken with it. It does feel like this was actually inspired, like I said, you know, with uh, Spielberg's segment and with even to a certain extent Miller's segment, it feels kind of like they're just kind of remaking and updating uh, the original, just kind of shooting it in modern times instead of actually doing a different spin on it. And I think there's enough different in the It's a Good Life remake to actually... Yeah, so the well, ending of the original is different. And I, I don't I don't love the ending of this segment. I think that's the only thing that stops it from being a nine. But it is interesting. It's kind of like a fire starter type thing, implying that they're going to go on this this journey, right? We, we learned at the beginning that the woman, uh, that her protagonist is, is maybe running from something, and she's maybe going to use Anthony to kind of <laughs> maybe get even. You, you, you think there's an abusive husband that maybe she's going to introduce Anthony it to? It seems like it, because uh, Dick Miller's <laughs> talking to her at the diner and she's like oh you're from there nice nice uh talent she's like if you say so and you know she's obviously running from something um Mm -hmm. but uh and by the way i can't believe i forgot to mention nancy cartwright bart simpson is ethel and it's a good life she's the uh adopted Uh... sister i guess you could call her so that's fun because i've been watching a bunch of simpsons so i didn't even notice it was bart but uh but yeah um it is kind of interesting, the implications. And again, that's another thing I appreciate. It's This segment leads so much open to the to interpretation while also showing us a bunch of stuff that we want to see. So it kind of checks both those boxes for me. Um, and I honestly, I do think it's the best segment. It kind of, 
honestly makes the the movie for me because if this if this bridge segment had been weak um if we had had you know good first segment meh second segment meh third segment and then a good last segment i think this overall would have been a failure of the movie but i think the the third segment being the best uh, really does tie it together and that's not to say i don't like the fourth segment which we're about to get into but i think 8.5 on the it's a good life remake and i think joe dante was really inspired by this one and i would i honestly would have loved to see him do more like let's give joe dante that one where they're all in a bucket it turns out that they're like action figures on christmas day <laughs> let's see what he would do with that oh yeah for, yeah 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 he could do he could do great stuff and so and he still got it. If you go watch Mick Garris's Nightmare Cinema, I, I like the segment Dante did there. And so, but yeah, I think he was an underused director. But let's face it, it by the 90s and 2000s, a lot of our favorite directors were not getting choice material, whether it was John Carpenter or Toby Hooper, or, you know, whoever. Wes Craven kind of lucked into Scream, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but, but anyway, the la- speaking of the last segment, the last segment is George Miller's. Uh, who's done everything from the Road Warrior films um, to The Witches of Eastwick to Babe, you know, so (laughs) he's done it all and Happy Feet. Um, This is based on a truly, if not maybe the true classic episode of uh, Nightmare at 20,000 Feet, originally with William Shatner. Now you have John Lithgow playing that role, a businessman who was terrified of flying. The plane is going through a storm. He's already very nervous, but then he noticed something on the wing. And it's interesting, this was Miller's segment, uh, since a year later, Joe Dante would give us gremlins. Right. Um, but uh, what do you think of uh, Mr. Miller's take? Well, I, I like it overall. I think that the way it ends and kind of ties back into the, the wraparound is a little awkward, but... Um, but fun. Really? Okay. Right. I, it is fun. I think it's a little, it's a, it's a little, I don't know, um, a little forced maybe, but it, it is fun. But to, to talk about the beginning of the short, I don't think the concept of the gremlin works quite as well if the protagonist is so insanely afraid of flying that he literally cannot speak. Like John Lithgow at the beginning of this, if he had even been at a nine, as far as energy goes, instead of a 10 right out of the gate, I think this segment would have had more of an arc to it. But really? he is really giving us all right from the beginning. Um, I, I just think it's it's a little bit more obvious to us, maybe. it's Or it's a little bit less debatable as to whether, you know, his anxiety is kind of, you know what I mean? It would have been more of a, is he imagining it type of thing? I don't know. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's just, he's wired at the beginning of this and he kind of doesn't have anywhere to go which i enjoy watching john lithgow just kind of sweat all of his pores out and just like go red-eyed for half an hour but it he is really out of 10 this entire time uh, i i love the look of the segment it's it's super gritty and grainy and darkly lit it really does feel like you're on a red-eye flight it has that kind of feel to it when you're flying overnight it's that dark kind of gritty and you're like oh i'm here for hours you know um it does have that feel of it and i love that gag of uh, the first time he has an outbreak a stewardess comes over and calms him down one stewardess offers him a sedative and then another hand appears off screen from off the screen to hand him a glass of water it's like a comic bit with with its timing yeah um i don't know it's it's just it is 
I think, just as good as that William Shatner short. I just don't think it adds a lot, I would say, overall. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's some things to talk about. I mean, first of all, do you well, think... Let me, let me pause you right yes, please. there. Go for it. See, I, I, I don't have a problem with a straight remake without necessarily a twist, especially because the one thing about the Shatner episode is that the monster looks like Fozzie Bear. <laughs> I love them, though. I love that design. It's goofy, but I, I love that design. That, I, this just looks... I don't know. I If I saw that out there, I'd be like, oh, we've got a wing walker dressed like Chewbacca. I mean, <laughs> but here, I think it's scarier. And I think that less of an actor than Lithgow wouldn't be able to sell this but I, I i'm a huge john lithgow fan i think he's such a versatile actor i mean watch terms of endearment and footloose and then watch cliffhanger or raising cane and you can see you know the kind of range the guy's got yeah you know he can do it all there's drama comedy you know uh he can play a psychopath like in blowout or you know he can play like the nicest guy in the world in harry and the hendersons right yeah which is one of my favorite movies, by the way. I know it is. And so <laughs> I, I love him in this. Mm-hmm. And I think he sells it. I think he's good. I just, I wish he had more of a, more of a range, you know, if he had just in the bathroom in the beginning, not been fear and loathing tripping, you know, if he had just in, in that bathroom, just been <laughs> gripping, cause that is, I mean, literally that's what's going on. That's what we're seeing. You think he's like Johnny Depp, Benicio del Toro level, he's not literally Terry tripping. Gilliam. Right. But the, the, the anxiety is causing, you know, literally everything to spin and there's like crazy edits going on. I think if he had just been in the beginning, even just gripping the the sink and like talking himself up, like psyching himself up, I think that would have been better and have more of an arc, you know, more of a, because in the, I mean, in the first 15 minutes of this, we're just thinking he's hallucinating, obviously, because he's so crazy anxious. I mean, it's not like he has a, an anxiety of, of flying, but he's still a normal human being. It's like, this is his entire personality is being scared of flying. So I, I I like his performance, and as it goes on, I mean, he does really sell it. But uh, I wish he had had more of an arc. But I do have to ask you: Do you think his fear is making the gremlin real? Do you think he like manifested that the plane would be tampered with by the gremlin? No, I, I think it's. I think all Serling was doing was following the old adage: just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you. Right. Yeah, that's true. But there's a Nirvana line, something like that, isn't there, too? <laughs> of course, my mind goes there. Well, yeah, but they, they stole that. And that's, that's, you know, it's an old, old adage. And so- <laughs> <laughs> what, is the, what is the line? Um, oh, right, 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 right. Um, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not after you. From right. That's a, yeah, that's an old, old saying. And so. Yeah. Joseph Howard quote. That's what it is. Yeah, yeah. That goes back a long way. And so. But I and I think that's where Serling was going with the original, and I think Miller had probably the most daunting task because this is one of, if not the most famous Twilight Zone episode. Yeah, and and so he had a daunting task ahead of him. You've got twenty twenty five minutes in order to do this. I think he cast it well. I think he shot it well. I you know I like it, and I've known people who are afraid of flying, and and so I I it, this is my favorite segment. Yeah, I think it's an interesting discussion to have that classic tree falls 
question or bear in the woods, you know, would the gremlin be there if there was no one to observe it? Because nobody else sees the gremlin, you know, until the plane lands, they don't see the damage caused by the gremlin. So if there is no one there for the gremlin to kind of taunt, I wonder if that has any effect on it, but maybe not. I don't know. But, uh, you know, there's a couple things that I, I question about the segment, like <laughs> near the end, we get Lithgow sh- shooting at the gremlin through the window. I don't know why he thought that would work shooting out the window of the well, plane. I don't why think, I don't think he knew anything other than he had to, he had to scare the thing off or kill it because otherwise yeah. they were going to go down. And remember this was shot in 82. And at that time, you know, there were a lot of plane crash. I remember domestic planes crashing and one of them crashing in the Potomac in Washington, DC. And mm-hmm. just after taking off from uh, DC, what then was DC international now is Reagan airport. Mm-hmm. And so there were a lot more crashes back then. And so, you know, the kind of clever spin that, you know, it's not, it, it's not the airline's fault. It's not the mechanic's fault. It's, there's something out there. It is, and it's kind of a funny idea in general, the whole gremlins from World War II kind of thing. But I do love it. I love that idea that there's this little guy sailing through the, the air and landing on, it's, it reminds me of that Bugs Bunny uh, short. Where you know I'm only three and a half years old. Do you know the one I'm oh, talking about? Oh, sure, which sure. is fantastic. But remember that Serling was a decorated World War II. That's right. You know, veteran. Um, in fact, he was airborne. You know, mm-hmm. he was he was jumping out of planes, and even though I think he was only like five four or something like that, he wasn't a big guy, but um, he apparently was a, an incredible soldier, and he had heard all those stories about gremlins, mm-hmm. um, gremlins getting into the planes, and gremlins getting into this and that. And so I think it works really well. I've always been a big George Miller fan. I, I think that, you know, he, he finally got, I think, wider accolades. Because everybody looked at like The Road Warrior and Mad Max and thought, yeah, they're good movies and and they're fun. And Witches of Eastwick, yeah, it's a good movie. And Babe, yeah, that's a good movie, but it's a kid's movie. And Happy mm-hmm. Feet is a kid's movie. He really didn't get the accolades he deserved from beyond a small group of critics and genre fans until he did Mad Max Fury Road. Right. Which yeah. people could not deny. It was like, wow, that looks mm-hmm. incredible. Yeah, which really just uh, took the elements of what worked with the original Mad Max films. I mean, they were there all along. They just weren't as flashy and well-presented. Well, and he did, yeah, Warrior. he didn't have the budget. Yeah, but... Yeah, right. Um, but, um, yeah, and I think that's great that this led into his career. He, he finally got that film that everyone pretty much unanimously agreed was like, this is, this is, this is pretty awesome. This is an instant classic. Yeah. Yeah. And, but I love it. I, I love John Lithgow. I think he's fantastic in it. And, you know, to kind of begin to segue into the wraparound, I loved that too. And I <laughs> think, it, I think it was just perfectly done so i give this a nine out of ten for me this is a 7.5 i don't think Mm. it's quite as good as joe dante segment but uh but yeah i think it is overall a better segment than uh than john landis's and obviously spielberg's i think it works it works better than spielberg's for sure um and i think honestly if you're going to watch any part of this dante's and miller's back to back (laughs) i think would be the way to do it i think that's the best way because i mean if you're not huge if you're not big into john landis and steven spielberg and the twilight zone in general and if you just want to watch something that is good i think watch um dante and and miller segments but i would it surprise you and maybe you look this up but would it surprise you that roger ebert 
gave this anthology a poor review. It would not surprise me, no. But he praised two segments. Mm -hmm. The ones you just mentioned. He said that he wrote in his review that Joe Dante and George Miller had upstaged the more um, veteran directors. Yeah, and I think that's absolutely true. I think they had more to give on this project. I think they had more to prove and more to give. And, um, you know, you said that Spielberg had to really coax uh, Miller into finishing his segment, but I'm so glad he did because it really does, I mean, having these last two segments be the strongest really does make the movie and leave a good impression in your mind. Um, well, it it does that, and I would argue the wraparound, which I really like. And so let's talk about the, the wraparound. You don't sure. seem to have liked it as much as I do. I I like it. I think it's fun. <clears throat> I don't think it's good necessarily. I don't think it's a good oh. tone setter. Would you say it's a good tone setter for the movie? Yes. Yes. Interesting. I, okay. You know, I, of course, the closing, which we'll get to in a second, is, is really quick. But the opening with Albert Brooks and Dan Aykroyd. And so- mm-hmm. You've got Dan Aykroyd, who, of course, at this time has already kind of he's, – he's left Saturday Night Live far behind. He's established himself as a movie star in his own right, having done the Blues Brothers and Neighbors and so forth. Albert Brooks was known kind of as um, – he was kind of edgy comedy, kind of alt-comedy before there was alt-comedy um, in the 70s. And, you know, he was kind of known for doing these avant-garde comedic short films for SNL. And somehow he does this. And um, I think Albert Brooks and Dan Aykroyd are the perfect people to do it. I said, you've got the Midnight Special playing. And then you've got, you know, do you want to see something really scary? Yeah. And then that turn. And I love the little two or three second like Brooks is growing uncomfortable and he's like, what are you doing? And then, and then what happens? I love that. Yeah, it's fun. And it feels, I mean, it has that kind of like blues brothers feel to it, right? That kind of improvisational, you know, kind of feel to it where they're just listening to the song and kind of, you know, like dude broing it out. And I like that. And I like watching those two actors uh, kind of have fun there. You can tell it was shot before the first segment. Uh, you can tell that it was shot before the tragedy had befallen the the, the production sure. because it really does have that kind of like hopeful, you know, we're just doing this, we're doing this fun thing that's a return to our childhood kind of fun project. Um, and it doesn't have kind of the weightiness uh, maybe of some of the later content, but um, it is fun. I don't think the scare works necessarily, that jump scare works from Acroy. Really? I don't think that works. It's, I, I did not see that coming. The for when I when I watched this when I was like twelve years old, I did not see that <laughs> sure. coming. Yeah, and I absolutely loved it. And I, you know, I put it online. And when I said we were going to record this, we we're going to talk about this. And I said all I need to say is, do you want to see something really scary? And everybody immediately knew what I was talking about. They yeah. love that segment. I like it. I think it's fun. I think Large Marge from Pee Wee was a scarier jump scare in a car, honestly. <laughs> I, I mean, if they just inserted the Large Marge jump scare in that part, I think it would have been uh, more effective. But it is fun. It is fun. It's a fun tie, tie-in at the end. I think Tim um, Burton was still doing animation for Disney at the time, so I yeah. don't think that was going to happen. But yeah. I I love it. And then you got the closer, you know, closing, the quick closing where you see John Lithgow taken off the plane 
they're talking about him that he's crazy that he's hysterical then the mechanics discover no something was ripping the engine apart and he's in the ambulance and he's thinking to my, himself you know uh, i'm on the ground i saved all these people and then dan Aykroyd turns around the, as the ambulance driver and you want to see something really scary and i'm like Oh, and then boom, we go into, you know, the famous, you know, Twilight Zone. I loved it. I thought it was great. Yeah. I thought it was the perfect way to open and close it. It's something. It's something for sure. I enjoy it. I think it's fun. Uh, I think it's a little bit jarring going from that Ackeroid and Brooks intro into the Vic Morrow segment. Um, It's a little, it's handled a little bit better, I think, going from the uh, Nightmare at 20,000 feet into the Ackeroid like reprise. I think that's done a little bit better. Um, And I guess that wouldn't have worked so well if there wasn't the setup. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it, it is goofy. It is fun. And I do enjoy it. I mean, I love, I referenced it in my intro. I love watching those guys talk about credence and yeah. I have to, admit, I was singing along. I have to admit, still don't know what that song's about, but, um, I, <laughs> I do, uh, I, I do like it. I just think it's, I don't know that it's effective as a intro to a horror anthology necessarily. Um, but but yeah, like I said, Large Marge, it, there would be no Large Marge without this, I'm pretty sure. I mean, I feel like this is definitely a direct inspiration for that Large Marge sequence in, in Pee-wee. But uh, I think I prefer that one a little bit a little bit more. But still, I mean, awesome just to see those two creative, you know, talents um, just bouncing improv off each other. At least it felt improv, that, that whole Credence thing, the way that they were talking. It definitely felt like something that Ackroyd would, would come up with. But... Um, yeah, I love it. And, and Albert Brooks as well. One of my favorite, I know I keep talking about the Simpsons, but on the Simpsons <laughs> all the time, he's in like every other episode of the Simpsons. So, um, so really cool to see him and, uh, and Ackroyd together. And it is a fun reprise, but, uh, not s- scary necessarily. I don't think. Uh, I give this wraparound a nine out of 10 as well. Wow. Okay. For rating the wraparound, I wouldn't go that. And maybe a seven. I think Aww. I would go for the wraparound. Uh, but uh, it is fun. But like I said, I don't know how good of a tone setter it is. Uh, I love it. I think it's a great tone setter. I, I think I, it would work definitely in the theater, starting on that night drive. I think that would be really cool in the theater. Um, uh, or to drive in. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, that would have been awesome. But um, uh, yeah, not not scary necessarily. But I don't think that's really the point of this um, except maybe the Vic Morrow segment with the scared straight kind of thing. I mean, the Joe Dante one is more fun than scary. It's it's anxiety inducing, but it's not necessarily horrifying. Um, and then the Nightmare Twenty Thousand Feet is also more of a kind of a thrill ride sort of feel to it, not necessarily an existential horror kind of thing. So I guess it doesn't need to be horrifying. And it was fun, and it kind of does brighten up a little bit the this thing that could be overshadowed by this tragedy you know what i mean it's it's immediately yeah. it's like a little a little ray of hope but i wouldn't go so far as to give it a nine out of ten but i think it's a seven out of ten wraparound um <sighs> i think that the cat from cat's eye is a better wraparound than, uh, oh <laughs> no 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 <laughs> uh, uh, i i think it's a great wraparound so well when i averaged this all out it came out to me to a 7.5 overall yeah I'm pretty close. I'm at a seven out of ten. I would say it's a rental, but it's actually free on YouTube in standard definition. Yeah. Um, 
but uh, but yeah, I, I enjoy it. I think it's worth seeing. I think you could do worse as far as a, as a horror anthology goes. And I think you could definitely do worse given the circumstances. I mean, given the fact that, you know, that tragedy occurred early on, they filmed that, you know, mm-hmm. pretty much right at the beginning of production after the initial uh, Dan Aykroyd and Albert Brooks segment had been shot. Uh, you know, considering that and how much wrangling Spielberg had to do, I really do think that the way it came out was was uh, kind of a miracle. And we see that sometimes, that, that sometimes the like good art comes out of tough circumstances. I mean, whether that be something as simple well, as sure. uncomfortable. I mean, you and I saw Jaws on the big screen together yeah. several years ago, and, and Jaws was a, you know, a mess to make. I yeah. mean, we mentioned John Milius earlier, earlier, John Milius was the main screenwriter behind the Indianapolis speech, Yeah, you know, for Robert Shaw, you know, over the phone, uh, right? He, yeah, he Spielberg, and Spielberg and Spielberg and Gottlieb called their buddy, John Milius said, we need this speech. And the next day, Milius dictated an 11 page speech <laughs> over the phone. And then Shaw took it and basically just kind of edited it down. Yeah. And, and so, but it, it, it was a mess, but it's one of the greatest films of all time. And, and so I'm not comparing, you know, Twilight Zone to Jaws, but I am right. saying that despite all of it, I still think it's an enjoyable film We're, worth checking out. And by the way, can I just say on, on Milius, you said that a lot of his stuff is kind of scattered, but brilliant. It's kind of overlong, yeah. but brilliant. I feel the same way about Ackroyd. I don't know uh, <laughs> if you've seen nothing but trouble, but um, uh, given, unfortunately I have. Yes. He's got great ideas and he needs somebody to rein him in. Like on Ghostbusters, he was he was reined in a little bit and his great ideas translate yes. to the screen. Then you get something like nothing but trouble, but it, when it's really everything but the, and the kitchen sink kind of. I remember reading that like Aykroyd's original draft of Ghostbusters was like 300 pages. And yeah, yeah, that's when like Harold Ramis and Ivan Reitman stepped in and go, let us take care of this. Right, right. (laughs) And I mean, with Milius too, I mean, you know, obviously there's a huge thing with Apocalypse Now about the cuts of Apocalypse Now. But I mean, I'm sure there was even more that was just never even filmed because, I mean, he's that kind of guy where. Oh, well, if you ever watch, you know, Heart Into the Heart of Darkness, the documentary about the making of Apocalypse Now. You know, I mean, the, the the thing took like five years to make, and yeah. you know, they kept having monsoons, and you know, and, and trouble with the Filipino government. I mean, uh, you know, Brando shows up on the set, a hundred pounds overweight, and <laughs> right. hasn't read the script. Yeah. Um, as so, is as is not uncommon for Brando uh, in that yeah, area. Yeah, yeah. So it was it was a mess, but. Um, <clears throat> But I, I really like this film, and maybe I will admit there's some C and D here. But I, that wraparound, which you, you know, weren't <laughs> high on, I thought it was really original in 1983. Sure, yeah. So, you know, I, I love it. But anyway, um, I do have to ask. Well, I've, yes. I've kind of hinted at this, but out of the three remakes, like straight remakes in this movie, do any of them improve on the original for you on the original segment? Um. I actually prefer George Miller's to the original with William mm. Shatner. Yeah. I can see that. I still, I think that they're neck and neck. I might still like the Shatner one just a little bit more because it's got that kind of cozy feel to it. And I love Shatner so much. And I think this is one of those roles, you know, in that episode where you kind of can't deny that he he can actually act. You know, a lot of people uh, make fun of him and they do the William Shatner yes. voice, you know. But I think he is really, you know, he was, it was before, 
uh, modern Shatner, you kind of get a look at kind of up and coming actor William Shatner in that segment. And he's great in that, I think. Um, I think for me, the Joe Dante's It's a Good Life, if it had the You're a Bad Man line in it somewhere, I think it would be the perfect rendition of that story. Um, but yeah, uh, it, 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 yeah, I, I, again, it wasn't so much that, but because for some reason I, I, I thought it was still in there, but maybe I'm mm-hmm. just missed, but well, we both talked about it. It's been, we, we've tried to record this podcast like three times, but because <laughs> yeah. of technical difficulties, it's been like three weeks since I've seen it all the way through. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I just, yeah, it was the Looney Tunes thing that bothered, that's the only thing that really bothered me. I, I do think the cast is better and, and so forth. I, I love the actor who played Anthony. I can't remember his name off the top of my head. Uh, but I, I thought that was really good, but I, I wouldn't say it's better. Um, even though obviously with the budget constraints and, and special effects constraints, they can only do so much, as you mentioned, like turning the family into furniture or whatever. Right. Right. And Jeremy liked, I think liked is Anthony and it's a good okay. life and he does a great job. I mean, he is a really, really scary, but then also kind of you realize by the end that he is, he's also, you know, kind of scared in a way because he, he's just trying to make connections and he really desperately wants someone to make a connection with but because he has this terrifying power. It's kind of hard for him to make a real human connection. So there is a little bit of, of uh, depth to his, his rendition of Anthony. But, um, but yeah, overall, I think for me, ranking them, I would go, I would go Dante, Miller, Landis and Spielberg. And I didn't hate any of them, but Spielberg's is the closest to not working for me. Yeah, I, I, I'm almost there with you. I would go Miller, Dante, uh, Landis, Spielberg um, yeah. with uh, the wraparound tied with George Miller. But anyway, um, that's that's me. Um, well, you have anything else before we? Uh, I, w- I would just say um, I would say, like I said, it's a miracle that the film is as good as it is, given the circumstances. Um, I think all of the people in this would would either go on to or had already done better work. But it's fun just to see, even you know, regardless of the circumstances, just to see this how the Twilight Zone affected these creatives. And we kind of take that for granted sometimes that these people that are like the new big names, they were inspired by something, right? They something sparked their interest to be a filmmaker, just like something sparked my interest to be a filmmaker. So it's really interesting to see that and to see them kind of paying homage to that, as you so often only see posthumously. You know what I mean? It's like, it's interesting to see them celebrating the Twilight Zone in a time where people still remember the Twilight Zone. So that that was really cool for me. Um, and if anything, I mean, it really did, it did just inspire me to go back and watch those Twilight Zone segments and just kind of um, appreciate what made those work. Even if I didn't love the segment in the film, you know, there's some part of it that I'm like, oh yeah, that's, you know, the person making this loved that segment and loved that show. And that kind of shines through, I think. So it wouldn't surprise you that this was a hit. Yeah, I believe it. A box office hit. Mm -hmm. It was made for 10 million and it made over 40 million. Yeah. So it made money. That's in a time where you put Spielberg's name on something and, you know, I mean, that's why Spielberg's name is before Back to the Future. That was the beginning of that time, right? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, Spielberg, when he made Jaws, was not given the credit. We've talked about this. They they gave the credit to the editor, and the editor yeah. does a great job. But yeah. and then he did Close Encounters. But then he did 1941, which is a huge flop. Mm-hmm. Then he makes his comeback with Raiders of the Lost Ark, which some people thought was George Lucas, not Steven mm-hmm. Spielberg. But then he does ET, 
but after you know, after his name is on Poltergeist and this and, and Gremlins, Doom and Gremlins yeah. and so forth, then it starts to be a brand name, right? Then yeah, it's, absolutely. Yeah, and so, but but anyway, well, folks, you can support this podcast. With all monies going to Jackson to help him through film school, and this week's been a particular stressful one for him for sure he's getting ready, getting ready to go on set here in a in a day and a half. So, support yeah. a future horror filmmaker. You can go to Patreon.com and search for Father and Son Watch Horror Movies. For only two dollars and fifty cents a month, you get bonus content. You can suggest films to cover, vote in the annual horror Oscars, and maybe even be on the show. So, you can also find more. Uh, over at our closed Facebook page and our, um, I, I don't want to say X account. Uh, oh, oh. What, what is formerly known as Twitter account. Yeah. At we'll Father's, go with the Prince method. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, at Father, Son, or uh, where can they find you online, buddy? You can find me on Twitter at Kane underscore Hero 12. That's K-A-I-N-E underscore Hero 12. Uh, you can find my YouTube and Letterboxd from there and all kinds of good links. Um, but, uh, yeah, I got a big, big, big Patreon, <laughs> project I'm working on. Hopefully soon we'll be able to do a bonus pod, but man, I've got an over an hour long video in the works. I've only recorded the audio so far, but, uh, it's, it's going to be, this is the big one. This is Zarbamba of, of Patreon wow. videos. So, so look forward to that. And, uh, hopefully we can also get a bonus pod out to you, but, um, I've got my hands full for sure. Well, I can be found as Pastor Matt R. over on um, uh, what was formerly known, the, uh, the <laughs> webpage formerly known as Twitter and Letterboxd. Jackson and I can also be found on a pretty fairly regular basis at Horror Movie Podcast. That's horrormoviepodcast.net, along with Nathan, Trey, Vicious Victor, and segments, regular segments from Jay of the Dead and uh, Big Bill Van Vagel, as well as the host emeritus pop up. So, that being said, Jackson will say goodbye to the good people and go get back to work as a producer. Do I have to? Uh, you have to. <laughs> goodbye, and remember to follow or subscribe. This is my version of a plug to us on whatever app you use so we can send our gremlins into your podcast feed. <laughs> so, we'll try to have them not do that much damage. Thanks for listening. Until next time, remember that the family that watches horror together slays together. Once again, I want to thank our Patreon supporters, Trey Whetstone, Stefan Sitter, Amy Swan, Ryan Bratton, Greg and Pearl Morgan, Nick Stump, Kevin Corpy, Kate Lamp, Joel Robertson, Ian West, Ian Urza, Greg Russell, Greg Bench, Dave Becker, Dan George, Carl Davis, Brian Scott, Billy D, Ashley Pinkard, and Andred. Thank you guys so much for supporting the podcast. You're the best. Like I've said before, you make this podcast possible. I'm Dan Aykroyd. Since childhood, I have been fascinated with the invisible world, a world which can help us get through life if we know how to draw upon its power. 
a world serving positive projections wherein you use your own personal, mental, and spiritual abilities to believe and subsequently make true the things that you want to happen for yourself. Also healing, miracles, the presences of spirits and beings once living now gone into another life, but who continue to intrude into our waking consciousness by, for instance, haunting people or places. The implicit potential indestructibility of the soul must concern us. All of the foregoing are actual elements in our existence. Over half of the world believes in such phenomena. There are plenty of photographic and audio materials, both conventional and digital, and also some trace physical evidence which support the premise that ghosts, UFOs, and their occupants, plus other non-worldly presences exist. They indicate a supra-form of reality as valid as our normal reality. But there is no jar of ectoplasm, and no one will show us the bodies from Roswell. We've had nothing to touch until now. This is an accurate glass rendering of a human skull designed by my friend, renowned American portraitist and landscape painter John Alexander, whose most recent exhibitions include showings at the American Wing of the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, D.C., and at the Houston Museum of Fine Art in Houston, Texas. It has been constructed to our demanding specifications after more than two years in development by one of the leading glass manufacturers in Europe, Bruni Glass. According to Bruni, no one has ever attempted to make a bottle of such quality and complexity as I hold in my hand. The obvious question is, why did we do this? John and I have always been avid researchers on the subject of the legendary 13 crystal heads, which have been unearthed at numerous locations and at various times on our planet. The story goes that 13 crystal heads have been found in places varying from the Yucatan Peninsula in Central America to the American Southwest in New Mexico and also in Tibet. There are now seven heads known to be in mankind's custody. Mitchell Hedges in Ontario, Canada. Smithsonian Institutions Exhibits 1 and 2. The British Museum Peace, Max in Texas. The Cross in Mexico City. And one currently owned by a woman in the Southwest who claims that she had to finally put it in a closet after he or she began speaking to her. Scientists estimate that it took between 300 and 500 years to carve one of these heads from a single piece of quartz. However, in tests conducted on the Mitchell Hedges head by Hewlett Packard Labs in the 1960s, they could find no discernible tool marks on the head to show how it was carved. Equally fascinating is that according to both physicists and jewelers, these heads should not exist, but should have shattered in the course of making them. In the film Indiana Jones, The Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, the well-known Mitchell Hedges piece is referenced, as well as the concept that some of these heads may have an extraterrestrial origin. Indeed, the Navajo believe they were bestowed as a gift to their people by higher beings, not of this earth. As a means of cataloging sacred cultural knowledge from the past, assessing the present, and foretelling the future. Contrary to the common perception of the skull as a symbol representing death, the people from these cultures, the Aztec, Mayan, and the North American First Nations, for whom these artifacts possess sacred and mystical properties, associate the crystal heads with a life-affirming symbology. In ancient tellings, the heads are living and sentient, sources of knowledge, insight, and power. The Mexican Day of the Dead is an example of how in Latin America the skeleton is celebrated as an icon representing life beyond our corporeal existence. On the feast day, the dead are held to return and commune with the living. It is in this spirit that we brought our project this far. We now have a touchstone and replica, which allows us, if we wish, to connect to the message of the crystal head's purpose on Earth, the enlightenment of humankind to the spiritual awakening, which can occur in all of us, and the acceptance that there is more to life 
than mere material reality. Hopefully this acceptance will lead to a less violent and more harmonious world as we respect the idea of higher power sources. Now, what to put in a bottle laden with such symbology and iconographic value? Such a symbol which speaks to our own common universality should have joy associated with it, shouldn't it? Also, since we are challenging traditional belief with the legend, the project should have a challenging aspect to it as well. We have this mystic symbol in which we have chosen to enclose joy in the form of a very pure alcoholic beverage. Which beverage, however? Only the most challenging arena in the legal recreational consumables industry, vodka.